We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, that collection of Jesus' most famous best love statements. And so far in the series, I've tried to lay three foundations for understanding the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which turn out to be the three foundations, I think, of the whole Christian life. Firstly, I've argued that we are blessed when we follow Christ's teachings, not in the trivial sense that we get a prize for good behavior, but in the profound sense that when you obey God, you are participating in the mind of the maker and therefore fulfilling your own purpose as a creature. We are genuinely blessed. And I've used the illustration of the manufacturer's instructions several times already in the series. Uh, the second thing that I've said is that we enter this blessed life not by performing the ethical riches of the Sermon on the Mount, but in fact by admitting our own ethical poverty. The opening line of Jesus' most famous collection of teachings is that we are poor in spirit and they are the ones who get the gift of the kingdom. In other words, uh, to the degree that you know that your inner self before God, your spirit, lacks all moral credit before the maker is the degree to which the gift of the kingdom is yours. And this is why, thirdly, I've argued that the Christian life never validly leads to judgmentalism. I know it actually leads to judgmentalism on a number of occasions, and there's some interesting research out this week that indicates that. Um, but the reality is, in the second blessing statement that we looked at last week, the second beatitude, Jesus says that we're to look at an unjust world and lament, mourn, not condemn. We lament the injustice of the world, not from a position of superiority, but knowing that we are a fellow sinner. They, it seems to me, are the foundations for understanding the Sermon on the Mount and for understanding the Christian life. And I think with those in place, we are now in a position to ask two crucial questions about the Christian life, and they are the subject of today's Bible reading. What does the Christian life look like? Jesus answers that in verses 5 to 10. But how will the Christian life be perceived by onlookers? And verses 11 to 16 unpack that. I'm going to take these in turn, and uh, hopefully uh, if I finish in time, we'll have time for questions. What does the Christian life look like? That's what the remaining six Beatitudes or blessings are about there in Matthew chapter 5. And, and, and just to, to sort of give it away up front, it seems to me that the general impression from these Beatitudes is that followers of Jesus are to be simultaneously single-minded and humble. Sincere and selfless. See if that makes sense as we unpack uh, these Beatitudes. Verse 5, the third Beatitude. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Everyone in Jesus' audience knew he was referring to a famous psalm from the Old Testament with this expression, the meek shall inherit. Psalm 37 gives a beautiful context. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. A little while and the wicked will be no more, but the meek will inherit the land. The word meek, praus, here in Matthew's Greek, just means gentle, gentle. But let me clarify, it doesn't mean mild-mannered in the sort of personality sense. Um, So if you happen to be a mild-mannered person, don't think, oh, great, you know, I'm meek. No. And if you happen to be other than mild-mannered, don't think that that necessarily, which is, you know, most of you, uh, don't think that that, um, necessarily means that you can't be meek. Meek is gentle in the sense that the psalm uh, hints at. It, it is to refrain from meeting power with power. To refrain from lashing out with wrath and anger, as Psalm 37 puts it. Not lashing out against unjust power. Now, just about everyone in Jesus' audience, when he reiterated this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, will have thought of the Romans, who had occupied Israel from 63 BC, when Pompey, General Pompey and his armies, walked into Jerusalem and said, we'll have this, and they had had it for 100 years by the time Jesus spoke this. And many people in Jesus' day wanted to be anything but meek. How could the meek inherit the land? We, in fact, have a song that was composed in Jerusalem by Jewish leaders written about a decade after the Romans arrived. It's not a biblical song, but it is a song from ancient history. Listen to the hopes and expectations. The kingdom of our God is forever over the nations in judgment. See, O Lord, and raise up for your people their king, the son of David. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, the Romans, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. Contrast that with the true Messiah walking up a mountain and saying, actually, we are all poor before God. And my followers are to lament, not condemn. Oh, and by the way, the meek will inherit the earth. When you hear it like that, you hear it, I think, with a different sensitivity the way the ancient readers will have heard it. And I think this helps us frame some of the other Beatitudes there in verse 6, the fourth Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I know the word righteousness and righteous are damaged words today. When do we ever hear the word righteous today? Outside the compound expression, self-righteous. It's entirely negative. But the thing is, in Jesus' context, it's just shorthand for the life he's asking us to live. It's just shorthand for 
meekness and mercy and love and turning the other cheek and that's what righteousness is. The real challenge of this beatitude though is, are we hungry for it? Are you hungry for Jesus' righteousness? You know, when you're really hungry, especially when you're really thirsty, you'll do almost anything to be satisfied, won't you? That's not just me, is it? I keep feeling like it might be. It's a great image. Are you hungry for the kind of life that Jesus asks us to live, the life of meekness and so on? Now, the thing is, I'm very conscious, you know, as a, as a teacher, I can't just get up here and say, St. Andrews Roseville, be hungry, and just move on, right? You can't command a passion. I can't, you know, whip up a thirst in you. But I want to put this to you. If you find yourself this morning not really hungry for more of Christ's righteousness in your life, it is perhaps because you're not thinking of Christ's instructions as the mind of the maker, as the manufacturer's instructions. Because if you did view Christ's instructions that way, it follows that your deepest desires as a creature are satisfied in Christ's teaching. The human longing for security and status and peace and meaning and purpose and life could only be found in the manufacturer's instructions. But if you don't view Christ's teaching that way, of course you're not hungry or thirsty. But begin to think of it that way, and you'll know that everything you really long for, everything you're trying to satisfy with other stuff, is actually found in Jesus. Verse 7 adds more content to the notion of righteousness. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I know I've said this before, but human mercy in the Bible almost always refers to what we would call charity. Mercy doesn't mean you know, forgiving people who have been bad to you. It means showing pity on someone uh, in their desperate plight. In fact, the next time the word mercy appears in the Sermon on the Mount, this charitable meaning is perfectly clear, if a little bit obscured by the translation. But here's Matthew 6, 2, which we'll get to in several weeks. Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. But give to the needy, those words simply translate uh, the Greek terms, poies eliemesune, show mercy. That's all it is. Exactly the same word used back here in the Beatitude. Show mercy. The merciful, here in the Beatitude, the Eliemenes, are those who feel pity for the plight of those in need. And I know I've said this before too, showing mercy to people in need is the chief sign 
that you know the mercy of God. All through Scripture, the chief sign that you have tasted God's greater mercy toward you in your desperate plight is that you look to a needy world and seek to meet them in their needs. Which is why Jesus says, it's the merciful who will be shown mercy. Because they're the people who are gathered up in Christ's mercy. But lest this be seen as superficial do-gooding, look at the sixth beatitude, which emphasises sincerity. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The English word pure, unfortunately, now has sexual connotations. If, if we say someone is pure, we, we tend to think of it in, in those terms. And Jesus will teach about sexual righteousness later in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's, this, this has nothing to do with that. Throughout Scripture, the expression pure means without division, um, undivided, um, clear. And to be clear of heart simply means to be utterly sincere. As the famous British theologian John Stott puts it, the pure in heart are the utterly sincere. Their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior or base. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. Here's the interesting thing. God isn't expecting sinlessness from us. But He is asking for sincerity. Because duplicity and hypocrisy, friends, are like spots on the glasses or cataracts in your eyes. They defile and they blind us from seeing God. Not sinlessness, but certainly sincerity. Well, the last two Beatitudes form a pretty neat pair. We are to work for peace and put up with persecution. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Again, those listening to Jesus were probably thinking about the calls of some to fight the Romans. They'd occupied for a century, let's get rid of them, let's bring the kingdom of God through violent resistance. But what does Jesus say? Uh-uh. The truly blessed, those who really participate in the mind of God, are those who work for peace. Even in that context. For the new Centre for Public Christianity documentary that I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, we recently interviewed two American scholars who are the authors of this amazing Columbia University Press um, uh, research project called Why Civil Resistance Works. Um, but Erica Chenoweth and Maria Steffen, uh, Erica is from the University of Denver, uh, Maria is uh, from the US uh, Institute of Peace, which is a think tank uh, founded by the US Congress to study uh, civil conflict. Anyway, um, they studied 330 
um, major civil resistance movements from 1900 to 2006 and assessed their success and came up with what to them was a very surprising conclusion that violent resistance movements in that cohort uh, were successful in just 26% of cases, whereas deliberately non-violent resistance movements were successful in 53%. And when we're saying major uh, civil resistance movements, this means regime change and complete um, social order uh, transformation. And um, if you want to get a little sneak peek of the interview with them, you can go to the CPX website and, and have a listen uh, or, you know, read the book. But the bottom line is peacemaking is twice as effective as violence in transforming power. Which shouldn't surprise us, it is the mind of God after all. All of which chimes with the final beatitude in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can never harm for the cause of Christ, but you can put up with being harmed. Hmm. And notice it's persecution for righteousness. In other words, following the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what's blessed. Not being persecuted for being an idiot, all right? Sometimes, you know, Christians miss this fine distinction. When I was a brand new Christian, I may have told you this before, I frequently, you know, as a 16, 17-year-old in a non-Christian home, um, prayed and read my Bible when I should have been doing my household chores. And I remember very distinctly one day doing just that. I should have been out raking the leaves, but there I was praying and reading my Bible. And my mum burst into the room and saw me like this and yelled at me and stormed out of the room. And I genuinely thought, it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. <laughs> I'm being persecuted. We are sometimes way too quick to imagine the world is persecuting us when they're not. We sometimes get scorned for being obnoxious and annoying, but there's no blessing in that. There is blessing, however, in someone like Pastor Shu that I know I told you about a couple of years ago. He, he, Pastor Shu is like the archbishop of about 6,000 churches. It's an extraordinary thought when you consider Glenn Davies is only looking after 350. Um, Pastor Shu, when I met him four years ago, had already been imprisoned three times for preaching the gospel in public. Now, that is a guy who has every right to have a persecution complex. But he, he was serene, he was jovial, full of joy. Why? Because he knows he is participating in the very mind of God. And no one can take that blessing away from him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Well, that's what the Christian life looks like. 
single-minded and humble, sincere and selfless. Is everything okay? Okay. Let me pivot to the second question. How will the Christian life be perceived uh, by those looking on? I want to make two brief remarks and then we're done for today. The first thing Jesus says in this next section is that even the most genuine Christian won't win the love of everyone. Yeah? <laughs> Verse 11 is a kind of hinge between the Beatitudes and Jesus' call to be a blessing to the world. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's very little persecution of Christians in Australia, if any, but it does seem like people are feeling increasingly free to insult Christians and to falsely say all kinds of stuff about Christians. I think I've got to admit that. And just this week, just accidentally, I was searching online for a copy of an article from last year in The Australian, which gave a very lovely, favourable mention of the Centre for Public Christianity and Dr. Dixon. Now, I was just searching for that, you know, Googling myself and all that. No, it wasn't really, I needed it for a talk. But the thing is, as I was searching for this Australian article, I came across another article from the same time in, uh, at news.com that pilloried me. I don't know how I missed it at the time, but I'm kind of glad. It um, cast the Centre for Public Christianity and me as a conflicted, lightweight bigot. And I, and I read it this week, and I thought, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not entirely fair. And if I hadn't been reflecting on the Beatitudes all week, I reckon I would have got really annoyed or depressed or shot off an email to that journalist a year too late. <laughs> but actually, I kid you not, I felt a little flutter of joy. Why? Because following Christ, however sincerely isn't always going to win friends and influence people. Jesus says it. But it is always a participation in the mind of God. When you find a jewel and you know it's a jewel, it doesn't matter that others think it's dirt. Sometimes our best efforts to live sincerely for Christ will backfire. Your best efforts at work or at home or at the club or at university or wherever you find yourself, they will backfire. And it's in moments like that you need to recover the ancient Christian art of losing well. Jesus was, of course, the master of that. And here he asks us, when insulted, when spoken falsely against, rejoice. That said, Jesus isn't endorsing a completely defeatist position, I should, you know, rush to add, because the climactic thing Jesus wants to say here in this section is that righteousness might just change the world. 
In verses 13 to 16, notice, he uses two famous metaphors, salt and light, to describe the influence of Christians in the world. Verse 13. You, which in the Greek is plural, a distinction we don't have in English, yous, are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything and so on. What does this mean? Well, we know that salt had three crucial purposes in the ancient world. Uh, One was a seasoning, that's obvious. Two was it it preserved meat, so therefore, you know, it was really important. Uh, And three, salt was actually a purifier. If you could afford it, you would rub salt into your skin, and it was believed that it was a sort of purification. So what does Jesus mean when he says his disciples are the salt of the earth? Are Christians the seasoning of the world? Do we spice things up? Do we preserve culture that's going rotten? Are we a cleansing, purifying element in society? Well, I don't really know. I'm pretty sure the metaphor must have been clear to the first hearers, but you know, there's no agreement amongst scholars as to exactly where the accent of the metaphor falls. So I reckon it might just be better to stand back and say that Jesus is at least saying his disciples will be kind of good stuff. Because everyone knew salt was good stuff. And actually, you know, the English, the classic English expression that we don't use much anymore when we describe someone as salt of the earth? Yeah, oh, he's the salt of the earth or whatever, right? Um, obviously, that comes from this passage. But that has the sense because salt, when we say someone's the salt of the earth, we just mean like really good stuff. Like, a, like someone who stands out as like a rock or as a, an authentic person. I reckon that'll do. Disciples are meant to sort of be the salt of the earth in that sense. The second metaphor, the light metaphor, on the other hand, is crystal clear and I reckon powerful. Verse 14. Again, the you is plural, yous, are the light, singular, interesting. The community of disciples together are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, They put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house and so on. The image of a light for the world, a light not just for Israel but for the nations, comes straight out of the book of Isaiah. So we know what Jesus is referring to here. Everyone in the audience will have known these famous promises in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah 49.6. Speaking of God's people, I will also make you... A light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Or Isaiah 51, our reading today. Listen to me, my people. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. One day, the prophet Isaiah said, God is going to light up the world with his righteousness, justice, instruction and salvation. 
And Jesus says that is fulfilled when Christians live the Sermon on the Mount. And verse 16 drives the point home, in case there's any lack of clarity. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. To glorify God is a biblical expression for what we would call conversion. You know, the word conversion doesn't appear in the Bible, but one of the euphemisms for being converted is giving glory to God, okay? People come to give glory to God, and that's the expression that Jesus uses here. He's he's describing people doing exactly what Isaiah said people would do. See the light and experience the salvation of God. But the extraordinary thing is Jesus says this will happen. How? Don't let me make it up. Look at verse 16. What will they see? Your good deeds. Your good deeds. In context, this can only refer to the good deeds of the Sermon on the Mount. Peacemaking, meekness, purity of heart, turning the other cheek, loving enemies, refusing to judge, and all that stuff. So here's an amazing thought that I want to impress upon us today. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just the genius of God for our blessing. When it is lived out, it is the way of lighting up the world with God's salvation. Wow. As people are drawn to our deeds of mercy and peace, they will actually see the mercy and peace of God. May it be so. This week, McCrindle Research released some really interesting data about Australia. McCrindle's a reputable national social research company, and they drilled down on some perceptions of religion and Christianity in Australia. And in particular, they asked this question, what things are most likely to attract you to religion? Uh, they also asked what things are most likely to repel you <laughs> from, from Christianity. Uh, and that's a painful reading list. But number three, the, num- the third most popular answer to this question, what's most likely to attract, is stories and testimonies from people who have changed due to their faith. Makes sense to me. What about the second most popular was experiencing a personal trauma or life event. It's amazing that people have sort of acknowledged that that might draw them to Christianity or to religion generally. But number one, seeing people who live out a genuine faith. It's not really surprising, is it? But, you know, to see the data is, you know, impressive. So then, here's the question. How do Australians actually perceive Christians? If watching people live out faith genuinely is the thing that's most likely to attract, how do they think of Christians? Well, McCrindle did us a favour or otherwise by asking this question. 
top 10 perceptions of Christians. There was a, a much larger list, but the top 10 have been collated. And the answer is mixed. Sadly, 10th, 9th, 8th, 7th and 6th most popular perceptions of Christians are hypocritical, opinionated, old-fashioned, judgmental, traditional. Now, okay, perhaps this can partly be explained by what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes even the sincere Christian life will lead to people saying all kinds of false things about us. That may explain some of the data, but I'm not going to let us off the hook. Because the reality is, some Christians really are like that. And perhaps all of us are sometimes like that. And it's the opposite of the Beatitudes, isn't it? Pretty much. Okay, what about the top five? It's remarkable and lovely that number five was faithful. The fourth most popular response, honest. The third, kind. The second, loving. The first, caring. What? It's not quite the Beatitudes, but it's not far off either. Statistics like these, of course, only sort of gather averages. And averages are never indicators of what your friends think. Okay, so the thing is, who knows if the same mix is true of your friends and family who look at your life? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who knows what the general population of Roseville and beyond thinks of St Andrews? Is it the same mix or, or is it, you know... Mostly the good stuff, mostly the bad stuff. All I know is that if we are to reach our friends with the wisdom of God, and if we as a church are to reach Roseville and beyond, it's only going to be if we're reflecting these top five perceptions. If that's what people think. Not the mix of all ten. Or as Jesus would have me say it, we can only be the light of the world when we are meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure of heart, peacemakers, and happy to put up with persecution and insult with joy. That is the blessed life. And it is also how we pass on the blessing. By living in the mind of the maker. For his glory. Lord, will you please help us as a church. And every one of us as individuals. to live for you, to be pure of heart, to give ourselves wholly to the task 
in all our frailty and fallenness to the task of being merciful, peacemakers, hungry for your righteousness, meek, able to put up with anything for your glory. We ask it, Lord, because we so long to demonstrate to others your grace and mercy in Jesus.